I'm Elena Salinas, software engineer and host of The Women in Tech Show, a podcast about what we work on, not what it feels like to be a woman in tech. For more information about the show, go to wit.fm. In this episode, I talked to Kathleen Dollard, Principal Program Manager at Microsoft. Kathleen has been writing software in .NET and other Microsoft technologies for over 20 years. We talked about how systems have evolved and how the process of developing software has improved. Kathleen also talked about different programming languages, such as C-sharp, F-sharp, and the Visual Basic. This episode is part of a series of shows featuring speakers at Microsoft Build, an annual technical conference by Microsoft. Thanks to Microsoft for sponsoring the show and letting me attend the event. I'm here at Microsoft Build with Kathleen Dollard, Principal Program Manager in DevDiv, focused on .NET and programming languages. Kathleen, welcome to the show. Hi, how are you doing? It's great to be here today. Yeah, I'm doing well. What about you? I wanted to ask you, what brings you to Build? So I'm doing a Q&A on languages with Mads Torgerson and Dustin Campbell, and we had a great time today, and we get to repeat the talk tomorrow, and so it's just a whole lot of fun to talk with these folks. So yeah, we get questions from the folks that are here at Build, and we get to answer what they want to know about languages in .NET. And we'll definitely get to touch on that later yeah. on in this interview. But first, I want to begin by talking a bit about your background. I noticed you studied chemistry for undergrad and also grad school, but then you've also been working on .NET for quite a bit. So what brought you to using these technologies since the late 90s? Yeah, so I have a great time with computers, but I didn't when I started out because this was a really long time ago. And when I took Fortran, I actually had to do punch cards because they thought it was good for your soul somehow if you had to use punch cards, which is really horrible to admit. But it was a very, um, we we're still trying to figure out how to teach computer programming. And so for example, for research, we still had an analog computer, which is not a digital computer. We still had that as part of the research facility where I was doing my undergraduate work. And so chemistry was way more interesting. We also had an amazing chemistry department, and I got to work with just absolutely amazing people in a small graduating class where I got a lot of support, which I needed at that point in my life. So yeah, I'm a chemist by training, and then I wound up off in the world working for research in chemistry. And it uh, turned out that the computers got interesting about that time. And so it was really right at the start of the computer thing in PCs, the whole democratization process. So I brought the first two PCs into our research facility and also worked on our mainframes, so which were ancient, absolutely ancient, not punch card ancient. But I definitely have stories from old, big, full-room computers. So yeah, it was a good way to get there. And then you know, I came up through just a kind of a, a journeyman kind of thing. I just went back and read the old algorithms books and taught myself and came up through language called Clipper, which was a DBase alternative, came up through that into Visual Basic. And all along, I kept getting more and more interested in how languages themselves work. And so I'm not trained as a language expert. I get to represent what our real programmers, the people who actually use our tools, do in the wild. And that's the way I think about languages. Wow, that's great. So basically you got exposed through your grad program and then you brought the PCs and then just got really interested yeah. in it. And you were also a Microsoft MVP in programming yeah. languages. And throughout this time when you are using already Microsoft technologies, what were some of the 
key innovations that you witness as you know, a user? Yeah. So I started with Visual Basic 3, coming out of DBase and into Visual Basic 3. And you know, it was really challenging for me because while I knew we weren't going to have inheritance there, I expected to have what is a static or shared, static in C-sharp or shared in VB. We did not have that in VB6 and below. And that was a real, real difficult thing for me to work around coming out of Clipper and some add-ons for Clipper that had that. So that was a big one. And the whole shift to .NET, while it was very painful for the VB community, it also was just this huge step forward. And then Throughout the first few years I was working in .NET, I was working in VB because the VB experience before Roslyn, it was already a compiler that was integrated into the developer experience. It was already in what we call an incremental compiler. And so then Roslyn shifted that and added an incremental compiler for C Sharp. And so people that were programming there know that was like a sea change moment because then all of the information that you have in the, during the compilation, that's available to our productivity tools. And that alongside having the team's dog food, and that just means they were using the tools themselves. When the team started dog fooding Visual Studio, you could see this massive change in what we were actually getting when people were actually using C Sharp and Visual Basic to do development. Then we started seeing real big improvements to the productivity experience. So I think that those were the big ones. I think that the addition of F Sharp was an enormous step forward for .NET languages because that gave us a real experimental space for functional programming and how we can make functional programming work on the .NET underlying framework. So I think that was another key change. And then, of course, more recently, .NET Core, allowing us to move forward and to fix our performance and other problems that we could never get fixed on .NET framework because of the backwards compatibility issues that we had then, the absolute long-term support. And so the .NET Core, which we now just call .NET, that was a huge step forward. So I think those were the big milestones along the last 20 years, you know? Yes, and you mentioned a lot of key things. I did, um, too much. You know? One of them was incremental compilation, yep. and hearing you talk about it makes me think how a lot of us might take that for granted these days, where yeah. we don't have to constantly be building from scratch, and we just get that productivity yeah. boost by yeah. building whatever we want to find. Right, and we think about the things that came from that. So we could not have built analyzers probably for either language, certainly not for C-sharp, prior to Rosalind, because we didn't have access to the syntactic tree, which is the round trippable version that's exactly what your code is, that goes into a data structure, and then could come back out as exactly the same thing. And that's what the AST, or the syntax tree is. And then there's also a semantic model, which is the meaning. And when you have access to both of those, your ability to do analyzers and code fixers becomes very, very real. And what would we do today without that? It's so wonderful to go into a complex piece of code with a whole bunch of if statements and go, just make it a switch. You know, those kinds of things we could not have done without this enormous shift that we did with the Roslyn compiler when we went to incremental generation. Getting also access to the IntelliSense that we see these yeah. days, right? So there's been some IntelliSense in C Sharp from the beginning. There's been more in VB early on. There was a different compilation step that got 
into a data structure. Before Rosalind, C-sharp had a secondary design time thing that ran, got as far as a syntactic model that was good enough to get intelligence. There may have been some semantics in there as well. I'm not sure about that. But it got you far enough to get a certain amount of intelligence, but to get all your errors, for example, you had to actually build your program as a separate step prior to Rosalind. And then since then, hey, no problem. It's like you get those errors just as soon as it catches up. And that's a really big productivity improvement, as well as the fact sometimes you can fix them, you know, super easily with some sort of uh, just recommendation and just accepting it. Yeah. Yeah. You also mentioned .NET and .NET Core and also how .NET supports F-sharp now and VB. I want to take a step back for those yeah. that aren't very familiar with the .NET framework. Um, if you can explain what does it mean? What is the .NET? So .NET itself is a very large framework of things. And there has, it has two generations. We have the .NET framework, which we call sometimes full framework. It's everything that happened before .NET Core. And that's up to 4.2, I think. But so that was the old style. And then when we switched and redesigned the runtime to something called initially .NET Core, and now we just call it .NET. And so there's .NET Core starting in 1.0 and 2.0, which were not super grown up. So they're not, they weren't used a lot. And then starting with .NET 3 and 3.1, they became very, very usable and also very fast for the web. And so then we saw this big shift of people to .NET Core, which again, we call .NET now. And we're now working on getting .NET 8 out the door. And so we do a new one every year. So we've been around for a while getting those out. And a big component of it, as I mentioned earlier, is this ability to support different languages. Yes. What is the value in this? What Can you talk about how a system would make use of this? Yes. So when .NET was very first envisioned back in 1998 and 2000, there was this idea of separating the framework from the language. And at that point, it was a bring your own language. That was the idea. And there was a number of languages, including some that were experimental, that were around back in 2000. And as we moved through the years, it turns out that we've really settled inside Microsoft onto two different languages on the Roslyn, and then a third language has its own compiler. So along the way, we had things like Iron Python and Iron Ruby, which were full languages that we had, we were working on. But we decided somewhere along the line, before I joined Microsoft, to focus on C Sharp and VB, which were the two big Roslyn languages. And so those are both there. We support that. VB is still under you know, full support. You find a problem, we're going to fix it. This is VB.net. We're not making changes in that language, partly because we believe that that actually has value for us to have a language that does not change underneath people. It is stable. It is going to keep looking the same, where we believe that very fast evolution on C-sharp is the right thing on that. And they're both Rosin languages, so they run on this parallel syntactic trees, and then they run on the same semantic model. So because of that, you can interchange between them, and it's very easy to like create a code fix that works for both. So there's a lot of value in those two being very sister languages. And then about, I guess about 12 years ago, Microsoft Research developed a functional language, which is F-sharp. And that's grown into an extremely important language. We have major people doing complex things and will occasionally work with somebody who says, I could not do this in C-sharp, it would have been too complicated. And it has some very specific features, including better inlining, 
it has a way to build a DSL. It's a computation expression is the name, but nobody knows what that's going to mean. But it's a way to very easily create a DSL, which is a language, a sub-language for whatever it is you're doing, whatever the domain is. And so F-sharp has some very specific things that it's good at. It has a completely separate compiler. And so because of that, it has to do all of the code fixes and everything else all over again. And so we've just spent a year improving that experience. So anyone who's ever tried F-sharp in Visual Studio, try it again, because we've gotten a lot better, a lot more performance. The team has been absolutely amazing this year with what they've accomplished with bringing F-sharp forward for us. We've also add features to F-sharp. We continue to involve the, evolve the language, but some of the things that we're committed to there, it's the most open of our open source projects. It relies on the community. So for example, for the web, the major web tools that you might use in F-sharp are all from the community. So if you're doing Maui, you're probably going to use Fabulous, which is from the community. And we also have language features that come from the community. So the team works on language features, but they also work on the experience in Visual Studio and also interop with C Sharp. So those are some of our big things that we think about in each language. And you know, so for VB, we want we want stability. We want C Sharp interop for C Sharp. It is our largest language. It is the one that we treat that way, and it has a very rapid evolution. And then for F Sharp, we continue to use that as a way to to research into new ideas. It has now been around long enough that we've got. A lot of the basics done, but there's still some things that we do over there that are super interesting all the time. And there we're working right now on some simplifying it, simplifying the usage of it, and getting Visual Studio working really well. Mm. So yeah, we could like talk for hours about this, but I just wanted to get some key ideas or differences, specifically in F sharp and C sharp, because yeah. you're talking about you know how this F sharp language is becoming popular, very supported by open source. It is using a functional language versus an object oriented from C sharp, right? And you're also describing it's helpful because you can develop DSLs, domain specific languages. I think it might help to just go over maybe a simple example of what would be a DSL or what would be a system and a new way of approaching it via functional in DSL or what could be the benefits? Yeah, so let's use an example, and I'm going to use an example from C Sharp and VB because I think that's what people are familiar with. Yeah. So if you look at link and the L-I-N-Q, that kind of link, in C Sharp or VB, there is a way that you can use Lambda expressions, but there's also a way that you can use statements in that, and that is a functional DSL. And so that's what we're looking at from a DSL is we're trying to solve a problem, and it might be an orthogonal problem, like how do we work with lists, or it might be a very mm. specific problem, like something in our domain, yeah. and we want a way to simplify the way that we talk about it, and that's what a DSL is. Yes, that's another good point that you brought link because I also hear, oh, I can do some functional style with yeah, link. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but yeah, you're saying that F-sharp kind of lends itself to have, you know, maybe so, readability or the yeah. way you design the system as a whole is... So F-sharp does a couple of things. So one of which is that whenever there's a language that we've kind of settled on, there's like three different major modes of how we delineate 
statements in a language. And so VB uses explicit statements. It has an end of line character and then it has an end. Okay, so it has an end with, end if, end whatever it is that you're, you're doing there. So C sharp uses curly brackets and F sharp uses a indented style. So this is what Python uses as well. So that's, those are kind of the three styles. So that's kind of a starting point from it. And then it uses inferred typing. So you don't have to put a bunch of types in there. And that's very functional that you don't have to figure everything out. It's the types are just there. And then beyond that, it has a different attitude around immutability, nullability, and what we call exhaustiveness. And so let me just give a quick example of each one of those. So nullability is obviously whether there's null. There's nothing is allows nulls by default in F sharp. So we, we have that. And then we have the exhaustiveness. There's something called a discriminated union in F sharp. So I can say this thing will be either, uh, let's just say sum or none. So it could be a sum of a string. And so it's either going to have a string or it's going to be none. It's going to be nothing. And so that's the way that kind of nullability plays through the system. And so the other thing is immutability. Everything is immutable by default in F sharp. So these sound like, you know, really like simple, non-functional, like really easy things. But then it allows us to put things together in a very functional way. And so the function itself is the primary thing that we use. So we pass functions around. By the way, that's something JavaScript does, you know, as well. So people mm -hmm. may see that in other places. But the function is the number one thing, where in C sharp, the object is the number one thing. And so that just leads to differences all the way through the stack. And it allows people that are very good at F sharp can write programs that if they compile, they're probably right. And I've been really surprised sometimes when I do work in F sharp is that the probability of me having on my test pass, like I've done conversions, like changed a style or something like that, that I would have expected to be chasing bugs for a day if I'd done in C sharp. And I wound up with a couple of things that are different, that, that are incorrect in F-sharp, mostly because I'm terrible at getting whether there's a not in front of something, I'll reverse the not really readily. That's just a problem I have coding. Yeah. And so those don't get fixed. I mean, that's the same whichever language. But there's a whole lot of other things, including nulls, including how that works. We're fixing that in C-sharp and including exhaustiveness, which is a problem we're looking at in C-sharp. So we do allow C-sharp to be inspired by every language that we can find be inspired by. And F-sharp has very much been one because if we look at JavaScript, then we're like, well, it's different in so many ways. Mm -hmm. Where do we find the parallels? But F-sharp, it's still running on, on .NET under the hood. And so we know anything that we've done in F-sharp, well, maybe we do it the same way in C-sharp. Often we pick a different way because C-sharp is a different language with a different feel. And we work very hard to stay true to each language. Like I mentioned earlier, you've been in this area for several years, you've seen a lot of things happen. Now that we have this clear three languages supported, what's the strategy on it on for .NET? Or how would this affect people? Are they building hybrid systems? Or how do they go about? Yeah, that's a really good question. So there is a lot of preference between the languages. Um, people that love VB, love VB. And that's great. That's wonderful. We still have a lot of people in that camp, hundreds of thousands of people, you know, use VB. And so we love that. Okay, it's fantastic. 
But there's some things you can't do in VB very well. So for example, Razor, which is very important to certain types of web development, Razor, there's no Razor uh, compiler for VB. And so you can't do Razor in VB. So there you would do a hybrid system. You would do the parts, your, you know, your controllers, the things that need the Razor compiler. You would do those in C Sharp and then have a hybrid project. Similarly, there may be things, another thing you may want to do in VB, by the way, is an amazing place to do XML. So if you're doing any XML, and we have a community member who's working on JSON, so that probably won't make it into our delivery, but there is Anthony Green, who used to be the PM for VB, is working externally on something adds on to VB and has JSON literals. So that's a reason you might use VB. And then for F Sharp, you might use F Sharp because you have something that's a little bit gnarly and it really would help if you could have some a functional approach. You may want a DSL. You may just want to be able to use discriminated unions and immutability so that you've got that rock solid underpinning. So there's a lot of reasons that you may want that for some part of your app. But we don't have the guarantee of everything just working. And it turns out that all the teams in Microsoft, they create C-sharp. And they create C-sharp kind of first. And if they do something else, it's kind of secondary. And so with that, we say, like, OK, that's great. If you're just hitting things in the .NET runtime, that's great, because you're going to have it any language. It's going to have access to that. But if you're using something that has extra tooling on it, like Razor or some stuff, even in Maui and stuff, so then you're going to wind up, wait a minute, that's not working so well for me. I want to drop back to C Sharp. And so that's kind of where we're at. And if it, you can do everything in C Sharp. But I do think the other languages have some benefit for people, at least some of the time. So yeah. And People can obviously find out about this in tutorials or there's a lot to unpack for .NET yeah. and we only have 30 minutes for the show, yeah, right? Yeah, I want to yeah. make sure. Yeah, so actually our docs are fantastic on Microsoft Learn. So what I do is I just, whatever I'm looking for, I state the language and then I state DOCS because it still works even though Microsoft Learn is now the name of our docs. It still seems to find it. And then whatever it is I'm looking for. And you can do that for strategy as well. So you could say like C-sharp docs strategy and you can go straight to the C-sharp language strategy. Same for VB. If you want to compare them, you can say .NET language strategy. And all that's going to get you into the right place in our docs. And that's really where we're focusing a lot of our communication now, including for previews, where now one of the things that we did last year and it's working into this year is that we've pushed forward when we get docs updated. So instead of updating docs just before we go out the door, we take the risk that something's going to change and we'll have to fix docs. And we work hard to get it close to the point that we do a preview that includes the feature. So, you know, when we add collection literals, we're going to, it's in there now and it's in the preview. And so it's in the documentation already. So, yeah. I want to switch gears a little bit before yeah. we finish and just ask you about the Microsoft MVP thing because I didn't get a chance to look it up, but I know it's important yeah. and yeah, yeah, yeah. I just want to get your perspective yeah. on what that yeah. is about and how, yeah. how you yeah. got to be a Microsoft MVP. Yeah, so I was a Microsoft MVP for 20 years, just exactly before I joined the company and you don't get to stay an MVP once you join the company. You have to give it up. And it was great because I saw the program really grow and, and really change a lot over time. 
So it's people that are dedicated to the community and are contributing to the Microsoft community. You can find online. I think if you look up Microsoft MVP, you're going to get straight to the page. That'll tell you more about it. Um, ultimately, you have to be nominated and then you, know, you fill out forms about what you do. And some people don't like doing that, but we really need to support the team that looks after our thousands of MVPs that can, you know, they need help. They need to not have to go find you and figure out what you're doing. And it's been really great to see the program evolve because when it very first started, the only way you could be one is because you did online. You answered a lot of questions online for the simple reason that they could count it. Okay. And initially it wasn't even on properties that weren't owned by Microsoft because they could count. And then it went. And so then if you did other things, but you told them about it. So for a long time, I was an MVP because I used to do a tremendous number of user group talks. I've given like, I think one year was 75 user talks in a year. So it was just amazing number of talks that I used to do. And then there's other times that I was doing a lot of work online. And so there's a lot of different ways that you can contribute there to the community. Now we have an open open source you know, element. So if you're contributing to an important open source project, and one of the things that if some people want to look into it, you might want to do a couple of different things. But Microsoft Docs are open source. And contributions to Microsoft Docs are the same as any other contribution. We love people that contribute and help us with our Docs because you need multiple perspectives. For C Sharp, we have a fantastic Docs writer. And Bill Wagner, he's absolutely fantastic. But it's one perspective. And so if we want to get a lot of perspectives in there, we need other people to read them and say, hey, I don't like, this didn't really make sense. And sometimes we got, we're not quite sure what you didn't like about this. And we'll ask you that. And if you can help us by saying what it was, we had one paragraph that came in recently. Somebody said that they think they thought I'd be fixed. I'm like, I think it's correct. I'm not quite sure what you want fixed. And so hopefully we'll get feedback from them. But yeah, we, we love feedback any way you can give it to us. And we have, I have an open source project uh, called System Command Line that Microsoft is owning, but we could really use some help on it. So mm -hmm. if anybody wants to contribute by helping out with that, they can just reach out to me at Kathleen.Dollard at Microsoft.com. And I, can, sounds I can hook them up. So yeah, I give a little plug for that. Yeah, it sounds good. I'll definitely include a link for that. The last question I want to ask you is more general. I'm wondering if there's a key piece of advice you would have for a recent grad. And it doesn't have to be tech focused. It could be about yeah. life or just a general yeah. tip that you would yeah, tell. Yeah, yeah. The piece of advice I want to give people is a piece of advice that's really hard to give. So I have to also give it some caveats to it is do what you love. And I'm going to add the caveat, but understand the cost. So like there's been years that I made almost no money because it was so important to me. I wrote a book and, you know, I did various things that I got almost no compensation for in the long term. I dreamed it would be there, but I didn't do a very realistic job of that. On the other hand, my son did a Pluralsight course just for the upfront money because he needed money to take a trip to see his now partner's parents. And so he needed a few thousand dollars really quick. And so he did this course. He still makes more money on it every quarter than I do. And so it's just like, ah! And it's a great Haskell course, by the way. If you're on Pluralsight, it's got a great Haskell course. Oh, Haskell? Course. Haskell, yeah. My, oh. my son did the Haskell course there. And so, you know, this is like uh, 10 years later and he's still getting royalty checks. And so do what you love. But then also understand the cost and the cost to, you know, I'm very happy that I lived the life that I have. 
I'm very happy that I spent years where I did 75 talks in a year. And you can imagine that's just, that's more than a talk every week. That's a lifestyle. And so there's certainly a lot of things I missed out on that. Happily, I had a good partner raising my kids. And so there was some things that worked out for me. But like in today's economy, you know, that sometimes it's just like, I need a paycheck. And so make sure that when you say, I want to do what I love, that you balance that. But at the same time, don't lose sight of what you love. And for me, you know, I wrote my first computer program when I was 11 or 12 years old. And I loved it. And then I hated it when I had to do Fortran. And then Mm -hmm. I loved it again. And so finding that thing that just goes, I want to do this all day. I love this. And I think that's the biggest piece of advice I would give. And, And also do what you can to learn to collaborate. And that the biggest thing, my biggest advice on that to everybody is understand what it means to listen to learn instead of listening to respond. And it's a really hard thing to actually get your head around that. I know because I used to be a super listen to respond person. And uh, it's really hard to make that shift. But I'll tell you, if you make that shift, it'll change your life completely. It's like super important to do that. So that's two pieces of advice. You only asked me for one. So Uh folks have to pick which one resonates with them. And yeah. Do you have any tips on the last one, though? Or what can I help you to be a better listener? For me, it was actually telling myself, what can I learn here? And then also spending some time, which I was very blessed to be able to do with, I was the dumbest person in the room. So I worked with Semantic Arts. It was a company out of uh, Fort Collins for a while. And uh, it was great because, you know, I got to be, like Guru was actually on my business card. But I talked to the president there later and I said, hey, you know, I really was, this was a really profound experience for me because I was the dumbest person in the room. The intern was smarter than I was. And his response is, the intern was smarter than I was, too. So, you know, we had this amazing group of people that were just, I mean, there were people that helped invent XML in the room, people that helped do these other just enormous things in the history of computer science because Dave was so good at bringing people together and to have experiences like that where you just have to sit back. I was also involved in a lot of early feedback with folks on languages before we had this open source thing and they used to like bring some of us in the room and I'd be in a room with a bunch of people that I had so much respect for and one time I was there and all these people I just I'm in awe of these people but this person on stage is speaking and it's like I missed the preface. I had no idea, no context at all. And I finally raised my hand and I said, you know, I'm sorry, you're going to have to back up a little. I don't know what you're talking about. So people I most respected in the room came up to me later and said, I'm so glad you said that. I was had no idea and I didn't want to say anything. And I'm like, what? You're the one that's my hero and you're lost and you're not willing to say this. And so I would say that that is just walking into the room going, I have something to learn here. I sit down with you. I have things to learn here. We always can have these conversations and learn going both directions. And if you can just start experimenting with that and experiment with that someplace that it's going to be okay. Some people at work, they may have trouble you know, being, asking those questions and doing that. And I respect your intuition about it, but we get to be a habit. It gets to be a habit that's like, what are you going to say? How am I going to respond to you? You know, how am I going to convince you of what I walked in the room thinking? And it was really important when I was director of engineering for a software house, that it was really important to do that because when I walked in the room, I always knew what I wanted to get out of the meeting. That was part of the way I worked. I also always knew the people in that meeting may change my mind. So first... I found out what they wanted. 
And then if it didn't align with what I wanted, I asked enough questions that I could then say, okay, here's a path forward. What do you all think? And it might be their idea. It might be my idea. It might be something completely new. But I took that time instead of walking in the room saying, this is what I think we should do, or listening to them to say, why isn't it what I think we should do? Then I was able to learn from that. So it's really, I think it's in your head mostly to say that, you know, you have things to teach me. You really, truly do. And that's true every time we sit down. Even when we sit down with a child, that's true. And so I think that really embracing that is a, is a really good lifestyle choice. Well, Kathleen, thank you so much for taking the time and coming to chat at Build with yeah. me. Thank you so much. It's been great fun, and I really appreciate you, you know, really appreciate the opportunity. And great. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you.